This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I feel it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about shame. One of my favorite topics, of course. Specifically, we are talking about the kind of shame that can come from labels or diagnoses, the kind of shame that we hope our storytellers today will be able to liberate themselves from. Our first story is from Jamie Brickhouse. It was recorded in February 2020 at Union Hall in Brooklyn, New York. The theme that night was the science of sex and love. You know, I like to think of myself as Jesus Christ, um, not when I'm wearing a loincloth, but that whole turn the other cheek thing, I hate confrontation. Example, I am at a new dentist for the first time. My old dentist stopped taking my insurance, so my partner, Michael, said, well, why don't you go to my guy, Dr. Flowers? I've been seeing him for years. He takes our insurance. So I'm like, okay. And so I'm at the first appointment, and now call me crazy, but I've always liked going to the dentist. I know, but I've got good teeth, so I think that has something to do with it. But I I just like, you know, kind of lying back and relaxing and having things put in my mouth. Um, And so I'm there, and I am already situated in that weird undulating uh, dental examination chair, and I'm lying back, and I've got my paper bib chained around my neck, and I'm staring up at the ceiling at the cool, white, fluorescent lights. And all I can hear is, which is the sound of the dental hygienist, Lisa, flipping through my intake, medical intake forms that I had just filled out. And then the stops. And I turn and I see Lisa and she cuts a nice figure in her dental whites. And she's facing away from me, the wall, and I see that her back is kind of tensed up. And then she says, you're HIV positive? And she says it in the way that you might ask, you're a convicted felon? (laughs) And the comedian in me wanted to say, no, I'm just kidding. That's the kind of thing I joke about all the time. And what I really wanted to say was, yeah, lady, you got a problem with that? But I didn't say either of those things. I just let the silence linger between us for a few seconds. And then I answered simply, yes. And she said, oh. And she turned around and she kind of gathered herself and she put on those latex gloves and she cleaned my teeth. 
So that evening, Michael said, oh, how'd it go with Dr. Flowers? And I said, well, Dr. Flowers was fine. He was a nice, avuncular guy. He came in and, you know, played with my jaw and said everything was okay. And I said, but Lisa, and he said, oh, I've never liked her. I said, well, let me tell you. And I told him what happened. And of course, he was icked out by it too. But we thought, well, you know, it's kind of weird, but what can you do? She didn't refuse to clean my teeth. And then we didn't think about it again. We just, you know, it left our, our minds until three months later. Michael goes in to have his routine cleaning. And when he's done, he calls me. And as soon as I answer, he says, we need to find a new dentist. And immediately I thought, Lisa. And I said, what happened? So he says that when he got there and he sat down in that examination chair, that weird undulating thing, she turned to him and she said, so um, I met your partner or husband, which is it? And he said, uh, Jamie, my partner. And she said, yeah, he tells me he's HIV positive. Are you? And Michael just answered he hates confrontation more than I do and he says no I'm not and then she shoves some blank medical intake forms under his nose and says it's been five years since you filled these out so we need to get an update on you and have you had hepatitis C because that can be worse than HIV and then she says I just asked these questions because I need to protect myself and then she puts on two pairs of latex gloves a surgical mask over her mouth and then she puts on one of those giant welder helmets <laughs> and in this beekeeper's getup, that's how she proceeds to clean his teeth all the while pulling down the sleeves of her jacket so that they uh, match up with the latex gloves so no skin is exposed and Michael said, I have never felt so angry and humiliated in all my life. And that's exactly how I felt when I was sitting in that examination chair. But on top of the anger and humiliation, she made me feel ashamed. And I thought I was done with HIV shame. You have to understand, I came of age sexually when HIV AIDS was a forest fire raging across the country, across the world. It was the worst thing you could get. There was no cure. There was no drugs. It was a death sentence. And of course, it was weighed down by the shame and stigma of how you get it. It still is. And safe sex had always been protocol, almost always for me. And when it wasn't, I always thought I was going to be one of the lucky ones that didn't get it. And then I got it in 2002. And I was lucky because the good drugs were already there. The, the drug cocktail had happened. and But still, I had my own shame about it. And I stayed in the closet about it. I told Michael and a handful of friends. I told my other, older brother, Jeffrey. And I never told my parents because I didn't want them to worry. That was my reasoning. But if I had had cancer, would I have told them? Yes. The real reason was shame. And then a few years ago, my brother and I got into a terrible fight. And he left me a message threatening to tell my father. And he said, my mother had already died. And so she died never knowing. And he said, how do you think your father's going to feel? Well, and I tell him you're HIV positive. When I heard that message, 
for a few seconds, maybe minutes, I felt ashamed and like a dirty, naughty little boy. And then I thought, no. If anyone's going to tell my father, I'm going to tell my father. And I called him down in Texas where I, he lived and I grew up. And he just cared that I was okay and that I was going to be okay. And he said, and I said, yes, I'm fine. I've never been sick. I, I take these, I think at the time it was two pills a day and I have no side effects. He said, yeah, 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 that's what I've been hearing. They've got, they've got some good pills these days. It, it's not the big deal that it used to be. I said, no, it's not. And after I told him, it liberated me. I didn't give a damn who else knew. So I told other people and I told friends and then I ended up including it in a memoir that I wrote. So I basically told the world. And you know what? Nobody cared until I met Lisa. <laughs> oh, and by the way, this incident with Lisa, it did not take place in a small provincial Texas town like where I grew up. And it didn't take place in 1987 or 1997 or 2007. It took place in 2017 in New York City on the Upper East Side. So at first, Michael and I didn't think we could do anything other than we weren't going to go back to Dr. Flowers. But we started telling people this story and they pointed out she broke the law. There's a thing called HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act which basically means that you cannot reveal a patient's medical information to another person. Doesn't matter who that person is, my partner or husband or whichever he is. And she committed a double whammy because in New York State, there's a thing called Article 27F, which deals specifically with HIV disclosure. And she said she wanted to protect herself. I wanted to say, lady... Unless you insist on mounting and barebacking your male patients while you clean their teeth, <laughs> I really don't think you have to worry. And you know what? Even if she had done that with me, which would have been another violation, of course, <laughs> she couldn't have gotten it for me because I'm undetectable. There's a thing called U equals U. The letter U equals the letter U. Undetectable means untransmittable. And it is backed up by the National Health Institute. And it means that people living with HIV, like myself, who have achieved and maintained an undetectable viral load, viral load meaning the, the amount of HIV in my bloodstream, through taking anti-antiretroviral drugs, cannot transmit the virus sexually. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that. And even people who aren't homophobic or HIV-phobic, they still think that getting HIV is the worst thing, and it's not anymore. I mean, I don't suggest it, but it's not. I mean, it's basically living with a manageable condition like, like diabetes. Hell, it's better than diabetes. I mean, diabetes is a pain in the ass. And today, I mean, sometimes I forget I have it. I've had it now since 2002. I, I've never been sick. I've never had side effects. And now I'm on one pill a day. Oh, and I love the name of my pill. It's called Bic Tarvi, <laughs> which it sounds like a, a hunky 1950s matinee idol, a cheap rock Hudson. Bic Tarvi. So... This time, I didn't turn the other cheek. 
I took action. I filed complaints with the uh, National Institute of Health, the New York State Department of Health, the New York City Commission on uh, Human Rights. And it took a while, and there was a lot of emails and letters and phone calls and back and forth, but I got action. Dr. Flowers admitted there had been a breach. Lisa no longer works there. And Dr. Flowers and his staff and the whole office had to be retrained. Now, of course, what did Lisa in was revealing my HIV status to Michael. But the way I see it, what did her in was her uh, ignorance and fear and prejudice. And frankly, I hope she never gets another job in the health in- health industry. I mean, the way she's so freaked out by disease, she should go work somewhere like Purell. <laughs> And as for me, I am done turning the other cheek. Besides, look where it got Jesus. Thank you. That was Jamie Brickhouse. Jamie is the New York Times published author of Dangerous When Wet, a memoir of booze, sex, and my mother. Jamie has appeared on PBS's Stories from the Stage, as well as the Moth and Risk Storytelling Podcast, and has recorded voiceovers for the legendary cartoon Beavis and Butthead. He is a four-time Moth Story Slam champion, a National Storytelling Network Grand Slam winner, and a literary deathmatch champion. Jamie tours two award-winning solo shows, Dangerous When Wet, which is based on his critically acclaimed memoir, and I Favor My Daddy, based on his forthcoming memoir. Before we continue to our next story, just a reminder that you can join us on August 6th for our next online live show. You can find out more about that at storycliter.org. In addition to that, we also have our next Science Story Slam coming up on August 20th. The winner of our very first slam in July was Julianne Villa. Congratulations, Julianne. Come to our next slam, put your name in the hat, and who knows, maybe you could be the next winner. But if you've been looking to try out storytelling or you have a new story that you want to try out, our slams are a super supportive environment to do so, and we'd love to see you there. Find out more again at storyquieter.org. My life has been incredibly busy lately, but eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. If you're like me and on the go, it's great. And don't worry, you'll never be bored with Factor Meals. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons with things like pancakes, smoothies, and more to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. And my favorite part, Factor Meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, which, as someone who is currently living without a fully functional kitchen, is ideal. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash storycollider50 and use code storycollider50 to get 50% off. That's code storycollider50 at factormeals.com slash storycollider50 to get 50% off. Our next story today is from Anders Lee. It was recorded in January 2020 at Union Hall in Brooklyn, New York, as part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. I hate filling out medical forms for health insurance. Uh, Nobody likes doing that. They are uh, tedious. They're redundant. They're they're kind of invasive, too. 
I really hate the mental health section. That's my least favorite part. Uh, because I answer differently depending on what mood I'm in. <laughs> Sometimes I'll say I have uh, mild anxiety. Other times it's moderate. I would never say I have severe anxiety. I don't want people to worry. <laughs> so I would worry about them worrying. <laughs> but there's one part of it that always makes me take at least two minutes to sit and contemplate whether or not I'm going to check the box. Because most of it, we're very good as Americans at filling out health insurance forms at this point. We do 50 a year. Um, and the one box that always takes me two to five minutes to decide if I should cross off or not is autistic spectrum disorder. I was a very slow child. I was stupid. <laughs> like clinically stupid. Everything was harder for me. Learning to read and write, do math, even simple things like uh, tying my shoes or cutting with scissors. Those things didn't just feel hard for me as a little kid. They felt impossible. Now, if I was a few years older, if I had been born in the 70s or the 80s, I would have been known as dumb. <laughs> but because it was the 90s, and we were approaching a new millennium, and we wanted everything to sound scientific, I was diagnosed with pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. <laughs> PDDNOS, <laughs> as it's known in the psychological community. I like to call it PDIDNOS. <laughs> so I identify. Now, at the time, Pedidnos <laughs> was part of the autistic spectrum, but today it would just be considered autistic spectrum disorder. So that's why I never know what to say, because I technically I guess I have autism, but I don't really relate to the current mode of, of autism. I'm I can't do math. I'm bad at math. I can't do anyone's taxes. I'm sorry. I have like the 90s version of autism. Back then it just meant you were a kid who liked the taste of keys. Now there are a few different things I did as a little kid that doctors would point to and say, oh, that's it, we got an autism. I had a lot of trouble keeping my mouth closed. And I don't mean I talk too much, like... I would just hang open, like this. Like, this is how I spoke as a little boy. My parents and teachers, they try and negotiate with me. They, like, let me leave it open on weekends. <laughs> it ended up being all right, because we, we lived in Virginia at the time. And people just kind of talk this way. Or, anyway, so... Another thing that I did, that I still do today when I know nobody's looking, is hand flapping. It's uh, STEM, short for self-stimulation. Very, very soothing way, a very, very good way to like stimulate or soothe yourself. Um, as a matter of fact, if everyone could do me a favor and just close your eyes for a moment. All right, and now think of something that really excites you. And now flap your hands.
It feels good, right? But it looks fucking weird. That is why hand flapping was strongly discouraged at the special needs elementary school I went to. Because a big part of the school was getting kids to acclimate ourselves to a world where things like hand flapping, no, 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 that's taboo. But wearing a cloth noose, calling it a necktie, perfectly normal and acceptable behavior. It was at that school that I learned that things like having a slack jaw, hand flapping, those are autistic type things. And those are things that you should be embarrassed by. Now, I understand now that autism is a very nebulous concept. It's very, it's very subjective. If you look throughout the course of history, as I've learned, it's meant many different things at many different times. There really is no one essential quality that makes some people autistic and other people not. It's a word. But I didn't realize this growing up. So all through that period, as a kid, I had a little voice in the back of my head that was always asking, do I do this because of autism or Anders Lee here? I didn't know where one began and the other ended. I've always had bad handwriting, which is a developmental issue. There are other things though that are a little harder to say. I'm a very messy person, which they say is symptomatic of autism, executive functioning disorders they call it. Uh, so if you're messy, that's autistic, but if you're on the other end of that and everything needs to be absolutely neat and organized at all times, you start to freak out, that's also autism. <laughs> There's some things that are really tricky to define if it's autism or not. I've always, I had strange obsessions growing up. When I was in high school, I was fascinated by the 1996 presidential election. <laughs> Bill Clinton triangulated his way to, Bob, to victory against Bob Dole, the Kansas senator. For some reason, that was captivating to me. Least significant election in American history. No reason anyone should know about that. If I was just in the World War II, they'd be like, okay, he likes history, but 96 elections, a little spectrum-y. <laughs> but there's one thing that I've always wondered about and gets slightly on the lewd side here. But I do not masturbate in the traditional <laughs> way. I don't do, I, I don't use my hand. I can't, it doesn't work for me. I need some more movement. <laughs> friction, I need friction. I'm a mattress thumper. <laughs> That's how I do it. Uh, I know, it's the stigma around it. It's unusual. But there are benefits to it. Like, I have very dexterous hips now. As a result. In many ways, I'm kind of a pioneer for discussing this. Because there's not a lot of representation for my people in pop culture. I don't know if that's autism or not. I, I, was, I didn't know what the deal with that was. But uh, it wasn't that big of a deal until a couple years ago 
when I signed up to be a sperm donor. <laughs> and it's called being a sperm donor, but it should be a, a sperm seller because it's it's a business. You get up to $1,000 a month for doing your thing into a cup. It's uh, pretty unbeatable. Um, <laughs> and I, I really needed the money at the time. Uh, so I go to the place and I had assumed that they would give me like a take-home kit. But they don't do that. They just give you a cup. They send you into a room. And there are no mattresses. <laughs> in the room. It's just a table, a chair, four walls, which I tried to use, but <laughs> there's such a thing as too much friction. Oh my God, I know. Uh, that's what I was saying, because, oh my God, I needed that moolah very badly. So I did my best to focus. I just, I sat down, closed my eyes, and I thought back to the first time I ever did the deed. And that was when I was 13 years old, and I had just watched an episode of That 70s Show. <laughs> and there was a scene in That 70s Show where the mom character, Kitty, she was lying in bed and had an exposed clavicle. And I found that very stimulating as a young man. So I sat there, thought back to Kitty, and after a few moments, boom! I did it! With my hand! For the first time ever! I felt pretty good about myself. I was normal now. Got the cup and I, I brought it up to the front desk. The person at the front desk was like, did you, com did you complete the sample? And I was like, I completed the sample, all right. <laughs> she said, okay, because um, going over your form you filled out here and it says something about a developmental disability. And I had to say to her, I mean, look, when I was a little kid, I was diagnosed with autism, but it was the 90s. <laughs> they were giving that away like 3D glasses. <laughs> she told me to have a nice day. That application was rejected. And I realized in that moment that even though I'm a grown-up now, and I, people don't think I'm autistic, I have an earring, you know? <laughs> I don't even really identify as autistic, but none of that can change the fact that once upon a time, I was diagnosed with it. And once upon a time, I was a slack-jawed, flappy-handed kid. That's just always going to be the case. And the more I thought about it, I realized that that's okay. 
because someone else got to send their sperm to the donor and this was probably a normal person and the couple that it went to used it to make some normal boring kids <laughs> and those kids will grow up and never give a shit about the 1996 presidential election <laughs> I've been Anders Lee thank you all very much that was Anders Lee Anders is a DC-based comedian and writer featured on TV's Redacted Tonight and the podcast Poddam America. We're so grateful to Jamie and Anders for sharing their stories with us. We are also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, Gastar Almonte, Nissa Greenberg, Paula Croxon, and Tracy Rowland. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Jen Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting these shows and to Anders and Jamie for sharing their stories. I always like on my birthday week to put up two stories that are really close to my heart. And these are the ones that I chose this year. So thank you very much, Anders and Jamie, for making my birthday a little bit brighter. Thanks for listening, everybody. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.